Hello everyone, welcome to the S Factor, where it's all about science. My name is Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. I want to welcome you aboard my show, where it's all about science. That's what the S and S Factor stands for. And if you heard the show before, welcome back. And if this is your first time here, welcome aboard my starship. We're going to travel across the galaxy, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor. There's so much going on in the world of science and technology. How many of you out there enjoy dusting your house? Especially pull out the refrigerator, you dust under the refrigerator, you pull out your oven, you dust around that. Maybe your baseboard trim around your house gets dusty and it's something you don't get to that often. We all have our battles with dust. But what is it? What's it made out of? And I'm talking about household dust. Is it mostly dead skin? The following from Life Science. When you're tackling the baseboards with a dust cloth, is what you're mopping up mostly your own dead skin? There's a myth that house dust is mostly human skin, but luckily it's only a little bit true. Skin cells are part of the makeup of house dust, but there are a lot of other components in that layer on top of your ceiling fan blades. These include paint, fibers, mold, hair, building materials, pollen, bacteria, viruses, insect body parts, flakes of skin, ash, soot, minerals, and bits of soil, according to the Canadian Center for Architecture. That list is based on the Canadian Dust Study, in which researchers collected dust samples from 1,025 Canadian homes in order to quantify the prevalence of lead. The proportions of each of the components vary from household to household. A newly built home, for example, might have a lot of drywall dust or other dust from construction still floating around. A house near a busy road is likely to harbor a higher level of outdoor pollutants from car exhaust compared with a home in the middle of nowhere. In a Canadian dust study, older homes generally had higher levels of lead in their house dust. No surprise given that lead paint and leaded gasoline were phased out in the late 70s. The commonly cited number that 70% or 80% of house dust is human skin is likely not true for most houses, however. According to a 2009 study of house dust in the U.S. Midwest, 60% of components of the dust came from indoors and 40% came from dirt and other materials tracked in from outside. That indoor 60% included everything from organic fibers to building materials, not just shed skin. And think about this, folks. We do shed our skin very, very frequently. I remember when I was going to college in Philadelphia, I had a professor that, you know, we, I was in an animation class and he, we were talk, he was talking about how when you recreate a character, a 3D modeled character in this, in this particular case, how you want to mimic the human body. And he was talking about how when you're, you're painting on a character, creating what we call a material that's going to go on this 3D model to make it look lifelike. Think about life and, and look at things around you and yourself with like a fresh pair of eyes and how nature works and all of that stuff. It's so easy to overlook that. But if you stop and you look around, you really live in the moment and take in what's around you and look at how things work. It's quite incredible. So one thing my professor was talking about was how 
you know, our skin is oily. We shed our skin renews. Professor was saying how in a way it's kind of gross, you know. (laughs) I'm reminded of him when I look at this news bit here because we do shed skin. We do have hair that comes out every day. It's part of the natural process of renewal in us. And I've known for years that part of dust is us. Now, people do drop a lot of skin cells as they go about their business. According to the American Chemical Society, the average adult loses about 500 million skin cells each day. And that equals about 0.001 to 0.003 ounces of skin flakes an hour. In fact, according to Mary Roach's Packing for Mars, part of the preparations in the 1960s to send humans to the moon involved having test subjects avoid bathing for two weeks to simulate potential problems that might result from the accumulation of skin and oils inside a tiny space capsule. Now, Commander Frank Borman of the Gemini 7 mission and a 14-day practice orbit for the moon mission did a report a buildup of skin cells on his scalp, but his crewmate, astronaut Jill Lavelle, told Roach that there were no problems with floating zero-G skin cells in the craft. (laughs) Not all dead skin flakes slow off into your home's floors, however. Many bits run down the drain when you take a bath or shower, and others are contained by clothing and end up rinsed out in the washing machine. It may not be such a bad thing to have a light dusting of discarded skin in your home. Now, says one 2011 study found that higher levels of cholesterol and squalene, that's oils found in dead skin, in dust were associated with lower levels of ozone indoors. <laughs> ozone is a pollutant that can cause lung irritation. Now, ozone reacts with oils like squalene and cholesterol, though, and a 2011 study found that squalene and dust can reduce indoor ozone by 2 and 15%. Now, what do you think about that? Now you know a little bit more about that dust that's in your house. Now, if you live in New Jersey, where I do, you know to watch out for these little critters, these ticks. Of course, you can get Lyme's disease. I have a family member that went through that. Not a fun experience. So just something to think about. And not just here in New Jersey, other states as well. If you're listening to me in some other state, you might want to pay attention to this as well because... These little critters can be quite dangerous. So, there's a tick out there that can make you allergic to meat, and it's spreading. Now, Christiana Carlson didn't think much about the tick she pulled off her torso while she was hiking in the mountains of North Carolina in September 2020. But back home in Mississippi a month later, Carlson complained to her doctor of achy joints and a bloated feeling in her stomach. Her doctor ruled out rheumatoid arthritis and a blood test didn't turn up anything definitive. Then Carlson started having eye infections. In February 2021, she suddenly formed a strange rash around her face. An urgent care facility doctor treated her for shingles, but the rash didn't get any better. When she returned to her doctor's office, a nurse practitioner asked, Do you remember having a tick bite? This led to another blood test that revealed antibodies associated with alpha-gal, a sugar found in the meat and fat of non-primate animals. Alpha-gal syndrome, AGS, is an allergic reaction that can arise after someone is bitten by a lone star tick. Now, it's named a lone star tick for the white dot on the back of adult females. The ticks are historically located in the south-central 
In southeastern U.S., they transmit the alpha-gal molecule from mammals they fed on to people they bite. Now, the ticks are being found in New Jersey in New York State's Long Island with sporadic reports further north along the eastern seaboard and in parts of the Midwest. The spread is prompting researchers to consider the potential long-term complications of AGS and to further verify the cause of the allergy using genetically modified meat. Now, normally when a person eats meat from non-primate animals, such as cows and pigs, their body does not react to alpha-gal. But when a tick bite introduces the molecule, the immune system recognizes it as an invader and produces antibodies known as immunoglobulin. Now, the IgE antibodies attach to disease-fighting white blood cells called basophils in the bloodstream and mast cells and tissues. The next time those cells come in contact with alpha-gal from any source, including meat, the antibodies recognize it and the immune system attacks it. The resulting allergic reactions, which typically begin two to six hours after ingesting alpha-gal, vary from person to person. They can be as mild as a tingling in the mouth or as extreme as anaphylactic shock. Some people with AGS can eat a double cheeseburger and experience only light itching on their palms or scattered hives. Others who consume a trace amount of pork fat and refried beans can go into full anaphylaxic. After eating meat, Carlson would immediately experience tingling and sometimes sores in her mouth. Within 24 hours, she would often suffer eye irritation, joint inflammation, rashes on different parts of her body, and swelling in her left arm. Now I'm just going to pause here for a minute. This is extremely serious. Now, I always tell my wife, we have her son outside, always check him from ticks for ticks. You know, they, if you don't real, if you don't know this, I'm just going to give you a quick little a lesson on how ticks get on you, how this, how this happens. I mean, if you have grass that isn't even really that high. Now, ticks know what they're doing. They, they will sit atop a grass blade or they will sit on a leaf on a tree. They will drop down, hoping to land on a mammal so they can suck your blood and, and survive. The problem is you could just be outside and walking on your in your lawn, or you can be at a park somewhere, and they're just sitting on the tip of a grass blade, and they'll get on your shoe, let's say. They will crawl into, you know, crawl over the tongue of your sneaker, go on your sock, start crawling up your leg. Sometimes they walk so slow you might not even realize it. Just to, as a precautionary measure, Make sure when you're done outside this summer, just check yourself over, check your children, pets. Make sure you don't have any of these critters on you because could you imagine if you are a mediator, which I'm sure I have many mediators out there listening to my show right now, imagine not having the ability to eat meat anymore because this tick bit you. Important to check yourself for ticks. Now, there is currently no treatment or antidote for AGS itself. Now, people with the condition have to try their best to avoid any triggering foods, eliminating mammalian meat and other products typically allows the symptoms to clear. I cut all the hooved animal products, Carlson says, and the rash, the infection, the joint pain, the inflammation all went away. One consolation for Carlson and most of the other 34,000 other Americans diagnosed with AGS, there's 34,000 people in the U.S. that have this because of this tick bite. Now, these people that have been diagnosed with AGS is that the meat sensitivity does not appear to be permanent and often resolves in four to five years. Well, that's promising. 
That's because the immune system cells that create the IgE response are immature B cells called plasmablasts. These cells do not seem to convert to long-term immune memory cells that remain on the lookout during a person's entire life, the way immune memory cells triggered by certain vaccines watch for invaders for decades. Now, people who spend a lot of time outdoors, such as park rangers and land surveyors, might get repeated tick bites, however. Those patients seem to develop long-lived memory cells. For them, unfortunately, the alpha-gal allergy probably is permanent. As the prevalence of Lone Star ticks increase, however, AGS cases are expected to rise. The ticks do appear to be spreading, says Richard Offfield, a disease ecologist and a distinguished senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies. Unfortunately, the United States doesn't have any kind of nationwide active tick surveillance program. Spotty records suggest the Lone Star ticks range is expanding, he says, but we lack high-quality, rigorous data on where they are and how quickly they're moving. So just to be on the safe side, you don't want limes, you don't want this. Check yourself for ticks. Be vigilant this summer when it comes to these little critters. I also want to mention, speaking of summer, summer is a great time. We, we love to go swimming. A lot of people out there love to go into lakes. Well, a couple of years ago, right here on the S-Factor, during the summer months, I recorded a show on brain-eating amoeba. You want to check that show out. You can go to my YouTube channel and listen to that, or you can check out scienceanimated.net and go under the S-Factor tab and listen to that show. A lot of great information there on the brain-eating amoeba. It is a rare thing, even if they're rare dangers, just to know what's going on out there in the world. It's not a bad thing. Also, be sure to check out when you're on scienceanimated.net. There's a lot of free animation there to check out, a lot of free educational content. I have facts about Neptune, how does snow form, how do plants grow, what is the monkeypox. Also, there's new Orbit Show episodes on Jupiter's biggest moon, Ganymede, a lot of cool stuff, scienceanimated.net, or you can go right over to facebook.com slash scienceanimated and watch my content there as well. Now, we talked about household dust earlier in the show. A little on the disgusting side, but very interesting. Now we're going to talk about something else that's in your household. I'm sure you have one of these in your house right now. Kitchen sponges. Now we're going to go down the microbiology road now. This is from Scientific American. Your kitchen sponge is teeming with microbes, but repeated contact with food waste is not the only reason. A sponge's unique structure plays a role, too. It could even inspire a new way to grow bacteria for research, according to a study in Nature Chemical Biology. One of the biggest challenges microbiologists face is culturing bacteria specimens that will not readily grow in a laboratory. Some microbes are incredibly finicky. And scientists often have no idea what conditions these organisms need. It's kind of like trying to make pandas reproduce in the zoo, says bacteriologist Trina McMahon of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who is not involved in a new study. Sponges could provide an answer. Bacteria are usually grown on petri dishes, smooth, unpartitioned surfaces. But sponges are riddled with hollow pockets, which, crucially, are not uniform. Imagine there are tiny rooms and bigger rooms, says Ling Chong Yu, a microbiologist at Duke University and senior author of the study. Some bacteria types depend on many other individuals for survival and need space to form large communities. 
but others require relative isolation, so they are not killed by their neighbors. Sponge's mix of larger and smaller chambers offers an ideal range. Although a sponge's potential as a bacteria farm might seem intuitive, actually demonstrating that experimentally is a challenging process. Yu says, the researchers first modeled sponge-like environments on a computer and found that varying chamber sizes would allow many different bacterial strains to thrive. Then they replicated these results in cellulose sponges. It's rare to see both scenarios combined in such a nice way, McMahon says, but she notes that Yu's team focused on Escherichia coli strains that were lab-engineered to be either dependent on one another or self-sufficient, so she wonders if the sponge technique will work with other sensitive bacteria. There is a limit, I think, to what you can do with those engineered strains, she says. Now, future experiments will show whether used purpose-built sponges can support wild microbes. In the meantime, he recommends sanitizing your kitchen sponge. It's probably not the cleanest item. <laughs> That's from Scientific American. Well, we're learning how dirty our houses are today, aren't we? On the S Factor. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, that's the microbial world. What can I tell you, folks? Now, seeing as though we are in the summer season, well, unofficially anyway, Memorial Day usually marks the unofficial start to summer. And here we are, June 4th already. Now, when you're outside, have you ever wondered why the grass is green in color? Now, as soon as the weather warms, lawnmowers also begin to start up, creating those perfectly shaped and brilliantly green lawns. But why is grass green and not blue or purple? The short answer is a green pigment called chlorophyll. The long answer has to do with wavelengths of encellular components called organelles and photosynthesis, which plants use to make food from sunlight. And as I mentioned earlier, one of my free animations that are out there to watch is the Orbit show with my character Orbit talking about how plants grow. And you can check that out at scienceanimated.net, also at facebook.com scienceanimated. Now, tucked inside tiny organelles called chloroplasts are molecules of chlorophyll. A molecule of chlorophyll consists of a magnesium ion at its center that is bonded to a porphyrin, which is a large organic nitrogen molecule now, chlorophyll gets its name from the Greek word chloros, which means yellowish-green. But how does it make your freshly cut lawn appear a gorgeous green? The molecule absorbs certain wavelengths of visible light, primarily red, that's a long wavelength, and a blue, which is a shorter wavelength. The green region of the electromagnetic spectrum doesn't get absorbed and instead is reflected right to your eyes. And there you have it, green grass. So now, that is the very scientific reason why grass is green. And if you want to see how grass grows, again, check out scienceanimated.net. Free animation on there. Really fun, really cool for kids of all ages. And I think adults will dig it as well. Our next story here is about China's plans to colonize the galaxy. China has announced its first plans to search for stars in a nearby habitable planet's that could one day expand humanity's living space across the Milky Way. In the project called Close By Habitable Exoplanet Survey, CHES, officials propose launching a 3.9-foot aperture space telescope roughly 930,000 miles 
to a gravitationally stable Lagrange point between Earth and the Sun, according to the Chinese state-run news service CGTN. Lagrange points trek around the Sun at the same rate as Earth does, meaning a craft at one of those points will remain the same distance from our planet indefinitely. Once the L2 Lagrange point, which is also home to NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, the CHES telescope will spend five years searching for habitable worlds across the roughly 100 sun-like stars within 33 light years of Earth. From this data, astronomers hope to spot Earth-sized exoplanets that are moving around their stars in similar orbits to our own. A clue that these potential Earth, Earth 2.0s may harbor water and possibly even life. The discovery of nearby habitable worlds will be a great breakthrough for humankind. It will also help humans visit those Earth twins and expand our living space in the future. An astronomer at the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the principal investigator of the CHES mission says that they hope to find roughly 50 Earth-like or super-Earth exoplanets in their research. Now, according to NASA's exoplanet catalog, 3,854 of the 5,030 known exoplanets have been discovered by a technique known as the transit method, which was first used in 1999 to discover the planet HD 209458b. The transit method works by training a telescope's sights towards the galactic center and watching for the telltale flickering of starlight as planets pass in front of the host star. So far, it has been used by NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, its Transiting Exoplanet Survey satellite, TESS, and the European Space Agency's ESA Characterizing Exoplanet Satellite to Spot and Study Exoplanets. Now, this is, it's really powerful when the world governments either work together to learn more about space or individually launch their own telescopes. That James Webb Space Telescope is going to discover a lot. It's out there in space. We're not talking about terrestrial telescope. These are in space, far from us, hundreds of thousands of miles away they'll be. They're going to capture things that we cannot see from down here. Absolutely incredible. And of course, Professor Stephen Hawking talked about us as a human civilization going out into the Milky Way and beyond, becoming an interplanetary species for to increase our odds of survival. We're only here in our own solar system. If we colonize the moon, if we colonize Mars, it's less of a chance that Homo sapiens will become extinct because there could be a cataclysmic event that wipes us out very easily. So, and, that, and obviously that can either happen with a war or something celestial happening. And people often argue about this. They say, why are we spending, and I've gotten emails, why are we spending this money? Why are we spending this time when we have things happening on Earth that need attention? And that's absolutely true. We need things. We need to take care of things here on Earth. Of course, this is our first home. This We have to be good stewards of the planet, of course. However, as we're doing that, I think looking up to the stars, colonizing the solar system is a good thing. I want to know what you think about this. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net. If you want to talk about the previous story or any of the stories from today's show, send me an email, info at scienceanimated.net. I'd love to hear from you. Now, we spent a lot of time on terrestrial news today, and the last story was celestial news. Let's stay in space here. We came all the way up here. We may as well stay here a little bit longer, right? 
So this next story is about vision in space. And this is from NASA. Understanding the effects of microgravity on the human body is essential in enabling astronauts to travel through the harsh environment of space for months or even years. Significant changes to the body's skeletal and muscle systems have been studied for decades, and strategies to maintain physical fitness are being applied through various countermeasures, including vigorous exercise aboard the International Space Station. But scientists and researchers still have a lot to learn, including how time spent in space affects the eyes and the brain. And remember, we, we were just talking about how it is crucial for us to for the survival of Homo sapiens to colonize our solar system and then go further out. Elon Musk is a huge proponent of you know, SpaceX eventually taking people to Mars. This right here is an example of some of the challenges of our existence traveling through space and also staying on a planet that has less gravity than we have here on Earth. Now, even during a trip as short as two weeks, vision changes occur for about a third of American astronauts. When the trip is longer, say four to six months, that figure may double. But before potential solutions can be proposed, scientists first have to understand what's causing these changes. On Earth, gravity forces a body's natural blood volume downward, below the waist. Our heart forces it back up to the areas above the waist, including our eyes. But what happens to that volume of blood in other fluids when gravity is no longer pulling them down? The human body has an amazing ability to adapt. Sensors in the upper body note when too much fluid is being received, so the body will decrease its overall blood volume in microgravity. However, this response doesn't always completely counter these fluid shifts. This can sometimes be seen in pictures or videos of astronauts aboard the space station. If their faces look puffy, it can indicate there's too much fluid in their heads. Does this fluid also accumulate in or around the eyes? Now, vision researchers are working to better understand whether the chronic fluids shift toward the head during spaceflight are causing the shape of the eye to change or fluid is accumulating in the back of the eye. An imaging technique called optical coherence tomography uses a special camera to take pictures of the back of the eye and help scientists to better understand the effects of increased fluid accumulation found in the tissue there. Dr. Stephen Laurie of the lead scientist for spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome research says, We have known since astronauts flew short-duration space shuttle missions that vision changes during spaceflight occur faster than would be expected during the same time period on Earth. However, once we started seeing swelling at the back of the eye surrounding the optic nerve, this became more concerning because it has the potential to lead to long-term changes in vision that cannot be fixed with new prescription lenses. Another challenge for scientists is that astronauts may not conform to a one-size-fits-all treatment approach. While all astronauts experience chronic weightlessness, about 70% show the earliest signs of fluid accumulating at the back of the eye, and only 15% show more concerning signs of this. When they return to Earth's gravity, these changes can take up to a year to resolve, with some changes to the eye never fully returning to how they were before spaceflight. Wow. Both men and women have been affected in either or both eyes. Now, Dr. Laurie concludes by saying researchers and medical doctors closely monitor astronauts during and after spaceflight to determine 
if any permanent vision changes will emerge, while also continuing with research to learn more about the underlying causes of these changes. And that's from science.nasa.gov. So we absolutely have challenges and we have to come up with solutions to those challenges before we seriously send people into space for a very long duration. And I don't mean Earth orbit in the International Space Station. And some people stay up there for quite a while. But I'm talking about years being in space, going to Mars, having a colony on the moon. These are serious questions. Our bodies are fit for Earth. Our existence, how we breathe, how we eat, how we see, how we look, everything is associated with how we evolved here on Earth. Our bodies are suited for Earth, not suited necessarily for outer space. So, so these are challenges that we have to overcome if we're serious about taking our civilization and spreading it across the Milky Way and beyond. This 830 million year old crystal might contain life and we're about to open it. From lemons to ham, salt is a handy food preservative, but researchers studying some really old salt crystals found them preserving something else, evidence of life. There are little cubes of original liquid from which the salt grew, and the surprise for us is that we also saw shapes that are consistent with what we would expect from microorganisms, says Kathy Benson, a geologist at West Virginia University and it could still be surviving within that 830 million year old preserved microhabitat. The salt crystals that Benson and her team studied were originally found in central Australia. Benson was part of the team that published these findings in the journal Geology. Although the idea that these microorganisms could still be alive is mind-boggling, Benson said the science backs it up. We know by studying life in modern extreme environments that there are organisms that are able to undergo like a survival mode, almost like a hibernation. They're still alive, but they slow down all of their biological activities, she said. Benson suspects that if there are in fact microorganisms in the crystal, they could be alive in a dormant state. Now, it would need to be, now these crystals would need to be opened in order to confirm that this is in fact organic matter and that it is still alive. While cracking into the crystal might seem a bold choice, we're currently battling a global pandemic caused by microscopic viruses after all, Benson says, and she plans to open this up. And she says there is no need to worry. It does sound like a really bad B-movie, but there are a lot of detailed work, but there is a lot of detailed work that's been going on for years trying to figure out how to do that in the safest way possible, she said. Now, Bonnie Baxter, a biologist at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, was not involved in the study, but still offered some comforting words. An environmental organism that has never seen a human is not going to have the mechanism to get inside of us and cause disease, she said. So I personally, from a science perspective, have no fear of that. Baxter said these findings weren't just a major step in studying the origins of life on Earth, but also opened the door to finding life on other planets. And when we're thinking about Mars, we're talking about billions of years, probably, since microbial life has been flourishing in the waters on that planet. And so we really need longer experiments and rocks that have been around longer on our planet to understand what could happen on Mars, Baxter said. 
And maybe, just maybe, they could move us another step closer to finding evidence of aliens. How do you feel about that? Do you think we should bust this crystal open and look at these organisms that are 830 million years old? As one of the researchers corrected, it sounds like a bad B movie. Like, what could happen? I'm interested to know what you think. I'm always interested to know what you think. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net. Let me know what you think about this. And with that, I just want to say thank you for joining me today for The S Factor. It's always a pleasure to bring you the latest in science news. Again, don't forget about that contest where you could win a free copy of Science Animated Human Body. Just email me. If you know the name of the scientist in my movie, Science Animated the Human Body, you could win a free copy of the film. You will win a free copy if you're the first person that has the correct answer. I'm looking forward to your emails. I want to thank you again for joining me today. You have been listening to The S Factor, where it's all about science, with your host, Chuck Shazer of scienceanimated.net. Don't forget to check out scienceanimated.net for free animations. You can support the show by purchasing Science Animated the Human Body. And also there's a support us tab there as well. Just to let you know, I have been very active on social media lately. So if you go to facebook.com slash science animated, you'll see a lot of new content. There has been, I have had a flurry, hundreds of new people liking the page and they're loving the content, which happens to be, you know, science news bits. There's some games on there. And then of course, some free educational content to view as well. So be sure to check that out. Facebook.com slash science animated, Twitter.com slash science animated, and I'm on TikTok at science animated. Until next time, be safe and stay curious. This is Chuck Shazer with the S Factor brought to you by scienceanimated.net. Take care, everybody.